Good morning. Welcome to the remnant, the few who are not infected with COVID right now. <laughs> so glad you're here. We are dropping like flies. Um, a couple of our staff are out today because COVID's in their house. It's just, it's everywhere. Um, and, uh, and yet, it's really good. Very grateful to be here with you today. So welcome to church. My name is Matthew. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor here and um, love that you're with us today um, to begin the season of Epiphany together, which you may not know what that means, but I'll try to explain it in a moment. If you are new, I would love uh, for you to come back after the 11 at 12, 15, 12, 30 and meet in here so we can talk a bit more about what it means to, to do life here at Emmanuel. Um, I'm going to read our text for today. It's a, it's a brief little text. It's uh, Luke chapter 3. And it's just two verses long, and then I'll, after I read, we'll just, we'll jump into what this text has for us today, I believe. Now, when all of the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son. The beloved, with you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, every year, the church decides to, and not just Emmanuel, but like the church, decides to inhabit a story. Um, that's what the liturgical calendar is, which was a kind of like a, like a, like to use the word, an epiphany moment for me as far as why we do this every year. It helped to make sense like, oh, we are inhabiting the story of Jesus together every year when we keep these seasons. And so every season that we keep um, has some component of the story of Jesus baked into it. Uh, Advent is waiting for Christ. Christmas is Christ coming or Christ being born to us. Epiphany, which is the season we started this week, is, is the work of Christ. Uh, Lent is the, is the death of Christ, which will start in March. Easter is the rising, the resurrection of Christ, and then Pentecost Sunday comes, and then we go into this big, long stretch called Ordinary Time, and it is the church, that's us, continuing the work of Christ on the earth. And every year we choose to put ourselves back in the story to remember that this is the central, the defining story that tells the story of humanity, of the world, of the cosmos. Uh, and this week we start... This sort of weird, ambiguous season called Epiphany, uh, I say it's ambiguous because it has the least sort of definition around it. It's also the most time flexible. It can literally be anywhere between like five weeks and 10 weeks based on where, um, uh, where Ash Wednesday falls, which is all based on where Easter falls, which is all based on the, the last full moon after the spring equinox. And so all, I know you all wanted to know all that. And so uh, it can be anywhere from like Ash Wednesday's the 1st of February to the, like the 10th of March. And so because of that, it's a really flexible season. And this year, it's pretty long. And in it, what we think about is this idea that God's work continues on the earth, that the work of Christ continues on the earth uh, through the church, but also that God's work was made manifest, or what the word epiphany literally means is like a divine manifestation, that like God was on display in the work of Jesus. If you ever want to know what God is like, the first place you should go, and the last place you should go, is the Gospels. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which is a really incredible statement. He's saying, if you've seen me, you know what God is like. And a lot of times we get into a lot of trouble because we try to 
just like look at little texts in the Old Testament or even other places in the Bible and we're like, I have a hard time understanding what this is like. And Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, the primary place that you can find that is by looking at me and my life. So today, for the next two weeks, we're just going to sort of set up Epiphany a little bit, and then uh, we'll go a bit more deeper into what the themes of the season will be and how we'll understand it. But this first two weeks is really just like this idea that like God is telling us what he's like in, 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 in these moments. And, and I just want to say, if you're ever like reading the Gospels, um, which, which I hope you are, even if that's the only Bible you read is just the Gospels, just stick close to Jesus. He's the one we want to be close with. Um, when we're reading it, just always be thinking like, okay, this is telling me, telling me what God is like. This, this is what God is like. Because as Paul says, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him bodily. So like the full experience of the, the full character and essence and nature and glory of God um, resides in him. So we just see three things in this text. I, maybe there's more, but I, I'm picking three things out of here that tell us what God is like. Um, and the first is this, God gets into the water with us. Uh, the Bible begins with these words, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's great. The Spirit of God, like a mother bird, sort of hovering over her, her uh, nest, you know, waiting for the life to come out. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The Bible begins with this idea, life begins in the water. Life uh, takes shape and is formed in water. And of course, what's great about that is that this, uh, that, that poem, which was written thousands of years ago, is just confirmed by science. That we understand that actually life did, in fact, begin in the water. That there's something about water that it has the constituent chemical properties that allow life to emerge from it, uh, given the right amount of circumstances and time. Um, all of us in our own life begin in water. None of us today uh, woke up probably in water, but at one point you were all living in water and breathing water, essentially. Water is the place in which life begins. In the Bible, water is an indication that a new thing is about to start. Moses, the story of Moses begins with a little basket and a baby floating in water. And then 20 chapters later or so, those same people are walking out of Egypt into liberation, and to do so, they have to part through the Red Sea. They have to cross through waters. And then at the end of the books of Moses, we find again the people walking into the promised land that God had said to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will have this land. It will be your land. And they are, again, crossing the Jordan River. So it's not a surprise or shouldn't be a surprise to us that John the baptizer in his preparatory ministry for the coming of Messiah, for the becoming of Christ, would choose water to be the place where that happens because new movements of God, new life begins um, in the water. But what's, I think, beautiful about this text is that whereas the Old Testament begins with God hovering over the waters, the New Testament begins with God in the water with us. No longer is God just above the water, just outside the story, but now he's wet with the rest of us. Everything from Jesus himself living and dwelling in amniotic fluid uh, to coming up out of the waters of the Jordan himself and having the water drip off of his very real, very material, very Jewish body. Jesus getting baptized makes no theological sense, if you think about it, because Baptism is a cleansing of sin, at least in this instance. It's meant to indicate I'm having my sins washed by God and I'm becoming a new person. Jesus had no 
need for this. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us that when Jesus went down into the water, John was like, stop. You, you're the one person that doesn't belong in the water here. But Jesus' baptism does make sense if you understand incarnation. Incarnation is a great little theological word, but it essentially is that idea of God moving into our neighborhood and eating our food and drinking our water and wearing our clothes and knowing our customs and celebrating our feasts and speaking our language and singing our songs. That that's what incarnation tells us, that what God does is not simply rise above or hover over the water or sort of be on the outside of culture or on the outside of human experience, but get square plumb in the middle of it and experiences and tastes and feels all the things that you and I experience and taste and feel. What Jesus is saying when he gets into the water is, you and I are together in this all the way. And to this day, every time I get to stand up here and put water on a forehead of a little baby, or we get to put a a big kid or a grown-up all the way down into the tank, either way, they are doing something that God has done. They're getting to reenact a thing that God himself has said, this is what I'm like, I also get in the water with you. He is the only God that we could dare to say he understands what it's like to be us. He uh, gets us. He's not like Zeus, you know, descending from Mount Olympus, putting on a beggar's cloak and pretending to be a powerless person. He actually becomes a powerless person. He actually takes on human skin and frailty. He understands what your experiences are like. God knows what it's like to lose a parent at a young age. God knows what it's like to lose friends, to feel betrayed. God knows what it's like to feel a rush of adrenaline before he has to do some public speaking and to get some butterflies in his stomach. God knows what it's like uh, to stand on the fringes of a wedding and hesitate before jumping onto the dance floor. He knows what it's like to feel sick. He knows what it's like to wake up with a sore throat or to wake up in the middle of the night and throw up. He knows what it's like to be injured and to be moving a bit slower this week than last week. He knows what it's like to be tired, to roll over and say, just 10 more minutes. God knows what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night with a Charlie horse in his leg. means he needs more calcium in his diet. God knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be hungry for a specific meal that would remind him of his mom. He knows what it's like to be angry. He knows what it's like to have a crick in his neck because he slept funny the night before and he can't turn his head all the way. He knows what it's like to lose a dear loved one He knows what it's like to die. Jesus Christ comes to us as a man who gets into the water and says, we're in this together. There is no separating your experience from mine anymore. And no matter what you're going through right now, whether it is pain around relationships or work, money, whatever it is, God knows what it's like. He chooses to get into the water. The second thing we see in this text is that God comes to us through prayer. The Jesus that Luke presents to us in the gospel, and when I say that, don't get weirded out. I'm not saying that there are four distinct Jesuses. I'm saying that each writer of the gospels is giving their lens on Jesus, just as would be true if uh, four people wrote a biography about you, and one was a, a sibling, and one was a spouse, and one was a coworker, and one was a historian. You would get four very different pictures of you, okay? So don't be weirded out the fact that there are some contradictions, apparent contradictions. These are four lenses through which these people understood and, and experienced Jesus or experienced people who experienced Jesus in their day. And in Luke, in Luke the Jesus that, they, that Luke presents, it's important for you to know that his life is rooted in a spirit-filledness that comes through prayer. 
Um, more than any other gospel, Jesus is found sneaking away to pray in Luke's gospel. And more than any other gospel, the presence, the abiding constant presence of the Spirit as being the one who is filling Jesus and giving him what he needs to do next is found in the gospel of Luke. This is seen pretty clearly in a comparison of two texts. Matthew and Luke, this is a little bit of Bible. Matthew and Luke are very similar. In fact, people assume that they shared a lot of of common source material, but their distinctions are what make them fascinating in understanding the, the purpose of the two authors. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about ask, seek, knock. Ask and you, will, uh, you shall receive, seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. And then he goes on to say, who among you, if your child asks for, um, for a fish, would give them a snake? If they ask for a, a loaf of bread, would give them a stone or a scorpion? And, and the whole point is like, well, none of us would. He's like, right. Now, if you who are evil in comparison to your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But Luke, same exact teaching, says it like this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, what will come to you? Sure, good gifts, great. But the Holy Spirit is what we're after. The Spirit comes to us. God comes to us through prayer. Of course, it makes sense, therefore, that the ministry of Jesus in Luke's gospel would begin with him praying and the Spirit descending on him bodily. Jesus receives the Spirit when he is praying. It's a detail that's not in the other gospels. He comes up out of the water. He's doing lots of stuff. He looks at heaven. The bird comes down. And Luke, he's praying. And I think it's important to just note that in the New Testament, like this is a pretty common idea that the Spirit comes to us in prayer it happens in Acts 2, it happens here in Luke 3, it happens throughout the, the story of the, the early church that it's in prayer. We tend to think that the Spirit comes to us through worship, and that's because emotions tend to come to us through worship, and we equate the Spirit with emotion, and that's not necessarily wrong. One of the evidences of the Spirit is probably some kind of an emotional experience, but in the New Testament, at least, it was like, if you want to experience God, if you want to have God manifest uh, himself to you, the way that that happens is through, uh, through prayer, which just means, and I know I sound a bit like a broken record when I talk about prayer, um, if you and I aren't creating space for it, we're not going to experience God the way that we desire to. This has been a really hard week for me around this. I have had poor practices. First week back to school, but it was all virtual. Our house was a bit um, of a school building. And, and so it, as opposed to a home where people are uh, away in school buildings, it was, it, was like, um, it was like the Schofield's house, like a normal week in the Schofield's house. Um, and so it was, it was, it was a, there was a lot going on, and it was hard to find quiet spaces, you know? Um, I literally, one day, I was downstairs, I finally snuck away, and I literally pulled a blanket over my head and had my Bible and a flashlight on my phone, and that's, that was how, and then Rowan found me. You know, so it's, it's like that it was hard to find space. And when I go long periods of time without praying, I feel it in my heart. I just feel def- deflated. I feel weak. You know, I, I know that all of us want to have some buoyancy to our life, but the scriptures say, like, God comes to us in prayer. In, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing to this church. He's writing from a, a place of prison. He's in chains, and yet he's writing about how we can constantly choose to be happy even in the midst of suffering, which is an incredible thing for a person in prison to say to you. You can imagine if you received a letter today from someone who was incarcerated and they were arguing for you to experience joy right now, and you'd be like, what is wrong with this picture? 
I should be writing to you about these things. But then he says, you don't need to be anxious in your life. Be anxious for nothing, he says. And you know, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but you know, who in here is experiencing anxiety? You don't have to be anxious, Paul says, but just present your request to God in prayer with thanksgiving, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We're like, well, I, I don't want to be anxious. God comes to us in prayer. If we don't find time, if we don't create space, we're not going to have anxiety alleviated on our devices. You do know that, right? We'll never experience an alleviation of anxiety through any of the means that the world says, well, this is how you do it. God comes to us in prayer. I heard a pastor named John Tyson, who's a pastor up in New York City, uh, Church of the City. He was doing like a, I don't know, a seminar for pastors. And he said, I just, this stuck with me. He says, no one cares what you got in New Testament Greek, but they will care if the hand of God is on you. And of course, you can just take that and apply that to your own life, apply it to whatever vocation you have. And I don't just mean the thing you do nine to five, but like your whole lived life, the people you do it around. No one will care what you got in New Testament Greek. Everyone now has figured out, except for those of you who haven't figured out yet, no one cares what your GPA is, no one cares what your SAT scores were. Those matter for a period of time, and then they don't matter at all anymore. But people do care if the hand of God is on you. That actually is the indication of like, this is something, now there's life, now there's something that we can give to one another. The third thing we see in this text is that God loves us extravagantly. Um, I can understand if we thought, you know, God comes to us in prayer, but God comes to us to yell at us, we'd be like, I'm going to stick away from prayer. I'm going to stay away from it. It doesn't sound like a great thing. But we see when God comes to us, at least in this model of Jesus, what does God do? Well, in this instance, he gushes. He says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. And Tim Keller um, in some place, I can't remember where I saw it, he says there's three components to what it means to be a child of God wrapped up in that expression. You are my son, or you're my daughter, you're my child, the beloved, with you my well-pleased. And the Christian mystics have been saying for a long time, these are words that we should understand as, 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 as reverberating off of Jesus into his church, into, into your life. And so there's three components to what it means to be a child of God found in this. First of all, you are my, my child, you're my son, my daughter. There's honor in that. There's a name. You're not a stranger. You're not a guest. You're blood. You're all the way in. There's honor attached to that. Second, you're my beloved, which means you have access. You're not a burden. I'm not constantly frustrated by you. I'm not wishing you were somewhere else. You have access to me at all times because you're my beloved. Of course you have access to me. My kids have access to me. They've seen me in all shapes and states, and, and, and they, but they, they have access to me at any time. It's just a thing. You're my child. You're my beloved. And then finally, I'm well pleased with you. And Keller says in that we see there's a sense of safety, that there's just a security in that, that I am well pleasing to God. God is already, already pleased with me. Not after I do a certain number of things, not after X, Y, and Z. Already a place of honor, a place of access, a place of safety. And you can imagine what this must have felt like to the heart of Jesus to hear these words, because what would it feel like to hear these words ourselves? In fact, we're told Jesus needed to hear these because right after this, he goes off into the wilderness. It says that he's driven to the wilderness to be uh, tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days. And what's the first thing the devil says to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into loaves of bread. Immediately he calls into question, and Jesus is like, I'm still a little wet from the river. I remember who I am. And he's able to deflect it. 
Well, you might say, that's great, of course, but this is about Jesus. What does this have to do with me? And that's where the really good news comes in. In the last night of Jesus' life, when he's in the upper room with his disciples in John 16, he looks at them, and they're very anxious. And what they're very aware of is that Jesus has this thing with his father, and that that's pretty cool, and it's been going on a long time, like forever. But they're still on the outside of it, like wondering, like, how do I fit into this? And Jesus just very casually says in John 16, 27, the father himself loves you. You're not, in a, you're, you're not like extra. Like The father loves you. You are loved. In fact, he says later, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. He says, like, the love that God has for me is the very same love that you already have in God. Years ago, my friend uh, redid a hymn that I'd never heard of before, but I loved it very much. It's called A Mind at Perfect Peace with God. Probably, maybe none of you have ever even heard of it. A Mind at Perfect Peace with God. And one of the stanzas goes like this, so dear, so very dear to God. More dear I could not be. The love with which he loves the Son, such is his love for me. Um, In Ephesians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, at the very beginning of the letter, he's sort of like um, helping them understand their, their footing. Like, there's a lot going on, there's division in the church. And he's like, I want you to understand what's most true. And in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says these words, you, you have been accepted in the beloved. You've already been accepted in the beloved. Something else you need to do. God loved you and me enough to send the Son to make it so that you and I could be received as children, which means that there is no shortage of grace and generosity and provision, goodness, goodwill. Um. We look at a picture like Jesus coming out of the water and praying, and we say, well, sure, Jesus had done everything right at this point, but I've done lots of things wrong. Or maybe we just in general doubt that anyone could love us in those ways. But the Bible wants you and I to know that in Jesus, God is saying, as much as I love the Son, so I love you. Not, I don't love you, but because I love Jesus, I love you. I have to. It's legal. I'm stuck. My hands are tied. But as much as I love the Son, I love you that much. That whatever love I have for the Son just spills off of him, overflows into you, and I see you with the same affection and fondness as I see the Son. Um, I heard a sermon years ago by a guy named Haddon Robinson, probably three of you have ever heard of Haddon Robinson. Uh, He was quite a big deal at one time in the world of preaching. Uh, He's now with the Lord. He was the uh, head of uh, uh, the preaching department at the seminary that I went to. Anyway, he told an illustration. I'm going to rip it off. And um, I'm going to sort of refit it to my life because it would be weird if I told his story. But it helped me with this idea a lot. So when I was 17 years old, I fell in love with a girl. And she was um, brilliant. She was, uh, she, she was funny, she was silly, she was beautiful, she was so, so beautiful. Um, she, she was spunky, she was a poet, um, she listened to Sixpence, None the Richer. Um, our second date, we went to the Squirrel Nut Zippers concert. Am I dating myself here? Um, we went to see a swing band called the Squirrel Nut Zippers as a second date, um, She wore baggy jeans and had a pixie haircut, and I was head over heels in love with this girl. We dated throughout college, 
And when we were together, it was easy because we were friends. And we were always were just friends, like best friends. Um, not that it was like easy, because relationships like take a lot of work and they can be really complicated. But like there was like a like an ease in each other's company. Like we just felt like ourselves with one another. We lived in Chicago uh, during college, and when we would come back, we would stay at her parents' house. And in 2003, we got married. Um, and when we came home to Atlanta, we would, we would stay with, with Tom and Pat. That's, that's her, her mom and dad. And when we, when we moved home, they let us live there for a while. Um, they let us live there uh, because we were trying to save up money for a house, and we had no money because people right out of college have no money. Um, but they have lots of debt, which is a problem we should do something about. Anyway, um, amen. Uh, but we, uh, we had no money, so we lived at their house, and they, they were so generous. They gave, they gave us the second story of their house. They had a big house in Cobb County. Um, they gave us the second story of that house for any, I mean, more bathrooms than I think we still have now in our house. Um, it, was, it was amazing. And not just that, but they, uh, they let us take over their kitchen because Pat was like more of like a Betty Crocker, sort of Campbell's soup casserole sort of person, which isn't bad. I'm just describing her. You, you, you immediately know like, oh, that's what that tastes like. Um, uh, at that time, I was trying to be a bit more of a foodie, like I read Bon Appetit, um, you know. And, and so she let me take over her kitchen and put all my weird gadgets in her cabinets and put all the, uh, the, 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 the spices and stuff that I wanted, all the weird ingredients in her pantry and her refrigerator and sort of take over and cook every night and make a big mess. And they would just come and clean up the dishes. And, and they, you know, they were like, hey, you're feeding us. We'll, we'll do the, the... So they'd let me make a huge mess in their kitchen. And her, her, her dad, Tom, has a pickup truck and just let me use it. I drove all over the town taking big stuff and helping people move. And, just, and why did they do this? Well, I mean, they did it because they're generous people. I mean, they're generous people. But why did they do it? Why they do it for me? Well, it's not, it's not because of me. I mean, they're very generous people. But if I walked in the door, if I just showed up at their house and said, hello, can I please take over the second store of your house? They would have said, you could stay for dinner. I mean, they're really nice people, but they're not just going to give me everything. Why would they do this for me? Because the way through which I entered the family was through the heart of their beloved. And everything they felt towards their beloved automatically was eventually given to me. And I still, to this day, live in that unearned, undeserved compassion and welcome and generosity. When God says to you and me in the scriptures that you have been accepted in the beloved, he wants you to know you have access, you are safe. There is nothing you could do or not do to change that. Nothing, no, never, nothing ever will alter the security of your place in God's heart. God's extravagant love is not simply for the Son, but it's for you right now. And don't you think he sees what you're going through? Don't you think he understands what you're feeling in this moment? He's gotten in the water to let you know he knows what you're feeling. He's not detached from it. And his love for you knows no bounds. And he wants to come to you. He creates space. He wants to come to you and to let you know that you are loved. So dear, so very dear to God. More dear I cannot be. The love with which he loved the Son, such is his love for me.
Hello friends, this is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.